Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the show. I am so happy you're here for today's episode. I speak with Zoe Ajonia, who's a pioneer in bringing West African flavors to a wider audience. She's the author of the acclaimed cookbook, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, and is the founder of the spice company by the same name. She has been named one of London's hottest chefs by Time Out. She's been recognized by the James Beard Foundation. She's spoken at TEDx Oxford. Her work is so inspiring, and we cover a lot of ground in this powerful episode. Zoe not only describes her background as half Irish and half Ghanaian and describes some of the iconic flavors and dishes of Ghana, but we also go deeper. Zoe shares her spiritual awakening and how it was related to founding her company. We talk about the problems with the hospitality industry, and we get into consciousness, sustainability, and the importance of following our own authentic paths. Such a great episode. As always, if this work resonates with you, you can support it by rating the podcast on your podcast app, by leaving a comment or sharing it with friends. You can also subscribe to the Mind, Body, Spirit Food newsletter where I share weekly recipes and essays. And if you become a paid member for just a couple of dollars a month, you help fund this ad-free space. It could not happen without the paid subscribers. So thank you. All right, my friends, let's dive in. Hi, Zoe. Welcome to the show. It is such an honor to have you here. Hello, you. And I'm glad we made it. (laughs) (laughs) So there has been some technical behind the scenes, technical problems, but we're here. (laughs) Hopefully all of the listeners will be able to hear everything without a problem. I'm going to start by asking you the first question I ask all of my guests, and this is so that we can get to know you a little bit, especially your kind of relationship to food. But what is your cultural upbringing and how has that influenced your relationship to food? So as you can hear from my accent, I'm English. I don't strongly identify as English as so much as I identify as being a Londoner, because I feel like Mm. London is its own country. Mm. But my mother is Irish and my dad is from Ghana. So really juxtaposed or seemingly juxtaposed in contrast in cultures, which actually ended up having quite a lot in common. But yes, that's me, Ireland, African-Irish. I'm just so curious because you said those two cultures ended up having a lot in common because I think from a listener standpoint, they do seem quite different. What are those similarities that you've come to see? Well, both countries are oppressed by colonialism. Mm. Both countries have had religion be a dominant social and cultural, you know, touch point. So obviously in Ireland it's Catholicism, in Ghana it's kind of Christianity with a wide label, you know, Baptists, all the different variations that come under that. Both countries have suffered a lot just historically through geopolitical things going on. I mean, I mentioned colonialism and imperialism. Yeah. But they've had a lot of, you know, trauma. (laughs) Those countries, I don't know know why I'm laughing. But do you know what I mean? And that that shows up in the cultures. But also, on a more positive note, both cultures, as a consequence of that, 
sort of there, there's a deep spiritual side to both those cultures outside of religion as well, and there's a real kind of village mentality in both those cultures, as in like raising having big families and raising families together. Mm. So meal times were also always like big occasions in both cultures. Storytelling is big in both cultures. The resonance with the earth, if I get a little bit esoteric, mm-hmm. but yeah, the magic relationship with the land is something that both the Celtics and Africans and ancient Africans respect and study. So there's a lot there. Yeah, there is a lot there. How did you become interested in food? And I know you describe yourself, you wear many hats, I think most humans do, but you describe yourself as both a chef and an activist. And have those things always been intertwined for you or did one come before the other? I actually lean less into the chef moniker these days. Mm. I feel like it's a title for the kitchen. When I'm in the kitchen, I'm a chef for sure. But I don't necessarily resonate with that outside of being in the kitchen. I hear or you. Leading a yeah. team. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And activism, I don't know that I would call myself that either, honestly. It's just one of those clumsy words you have to, it's a label, right? It's a little bit clumsy. But mm. I'm passionate about justice and so social justice, food justice, and any kind of justice especially where it touches any of my own intersectionalities mm-hmm. I'm passionate about. So I think I was into justice before I was cooking professionally and had the label chef. So I think that justice is like a pipeline. It's part of my, it's a fabrication of my DNA, mm-hmm. not least by virtue of like having two immigrant parents, as we talked about those cultural influences. And, you know, food is a really great tool as I'm not the first person to say it, and I have been saying it for 13 years, but it's a great leveler. So it's a great yeah. place to have a conversation, to start a conversation, and to get people curious. And I think that's what really drove my passion in food for the longest time. It still does today, is being able to engage people beyond the plate with some storytelling, some narrative around who those, where the food comes from, who produces it, why it's good for you, and so on and so forth. Exactly. I resonate with that so strongly. And it's interesting how you said that the chef label isn't the strongest label. And that's certainly true for me now. And for a lot of my career, that was the strongest label and things are changing as I think the stories behind food and how food connects us or disconnects us. It's such a great way to enter into a bigger conversation about not just our bodies, but also about politics and about the earth and sustainability and all of these things. Were you the kind of kid who was always interested in cooking and eating, or was this something that came to you later in life? I was a latchkey kid. And so I'm of a generation who were kind of, you know, that's just how it was, right? In the 80s and 90s, you yeah. kind of brought yourselves up a little bit. So there's that. And then, you know, why food became more than just a sustenance, I suppose, for me is because, and as I said, you know, I had this big Irish family and I spent a lot of time in Ireland as a kid around that big Irish family and food was always a big, the focal point of that family gathering. And it was a very, while it had a strong dominant matriarch grandmother, mm. it was still mm-hmm. a very, she upheld the patriarchy, if you know what I mean. That's yeah. what some grandmothers can do. Yes. So all the girls, the women, were always in the kitchen, you know, preparing and making food for the men, mm-hmm. which even as a kid I had an issue with. 
like <laughs> really annoying me that the men got bigger plates of food than us. We were the ones who were cooking all day. Sorry, I went on a tangent, but <laughs> no, so, this is so, important to hear. <laughs> so there's that, but then there's also, and because both my parents were immigrant, and that is important to keep referencing, is they were poor immigrants, really young to the UK, in an unstable you know, economic climate, you know. It's the statue years. It's, there's a lot going on in England at the time. And my dad was quite absent from my childhood. So the two things are like my mum getting food packages from my grandmother. I noticed in my food packages, I mean like some soda bread, homemade mm. soda bread, some gulty cheese, red lemonade, potato crisps, things from home, right? So mm. nostalgia in the box of food. It's always a big, exciting moment for that package to come for my mum more than anybody else and I clocked from a very early age how important that food was for her in connecting her to her own mother and to where she's from and similarly my dad was pretty absent from my childhood but when he was around he invariably had a bag of groceries from an African grocery shop and obviously this was wildly different types of food to that we would normally be having in the house so it goes from like egg and chips or you know some stereotypical Irish thing like gammon and potatoes and cabbage to suddenly yams and smoked tilapia and mm. hot pepper sauce and you know all this exotic and air quotes smells and flavours and very vibrant but very different smells taste textures going on and my dad was kind of selfish in a way because he wasn't very interested in sharing that out past his own concern. But mm. similarly, I could see him getting into like a meditative state when he cooked those things that he cooked largely for himself instantly. But I used to then, I, so the food from Ghana essentially became a tool for me to be able to connect with my dad mm. in a way without us talking because he wasn't a big talker, unless it was admonishment. <laughs> and... Again, you know, it was a way for me to connect with my Ghanaian roots in the absence of not having any Ghanaian family mm. in London and any, you know, direct connection with the culture. So the food became a fascination point and this entry point for me to dive into my ancestry and in some seminal way connect me to my dad. I think this is a great segue for us to talk about Ghanaian food. I had really the luck to study in Senegal. I did my college thesis research in Senegal just for a summer. And to be honest, I grew up in the Midwest here in the States, and I had never tasted West African food before that time. And even now, living in the Hudson Valley, there are no Senegalese restaurants that I know of and very few African restaurants. And it's such a joy. I have your book, Zoe's Ghana's Kitchen, which I love. And the memories of some of those dishes like chicken yasa and chebujen, which is a spicy fish stew, palm oil, the taste of palm oil, the taste of peanuts, like all of these things are so powerful and so delicious. And I want our listeners to get a taste of Ghanaian food. If you are mm. able to describe some of the flavors and maybe some of the dishes that really maybe represent for you what the cuisine is about. Yeah, well, you're not doing a bad job yourself. I'm glad that you bring up palm oil because it is an amazing ingredient that's had a bad rep. But let me just preface this by saying it's very hard to categorize yeah. countries large as Ghana mm-hmm. as it's one thing, right? Sure. But perhaps I can break some stereotypes or misconceptions around what it might be because 
you know, it's a very plant-forward diet, which people don't mm. necessarily connect with Ghana and African countries in general, because it's such a, as I said, it's a culture so connected to the land and farming and getting as much use out of every ingredient as possible and investigating like the medicinal properties of the ingredients as well. So almost every single ingredient will also have a medicinal use or a medicinal application, whether it's topically wow. or by ingest or anything like that. Mm. So whether it's a goosey, ground melon seeds, whether it's you know, the spices, grains of Salem, Dawa Dawa, grains of paradise, all of these things, they, and the leaves as well, you know, taro leaves, the bitter leaves all have amazing health attributes. And I'm not even going to go into the superfoods, moringa and baobab and all of that, but there's a whole wow. industry building its back off of African superfoods right now. But, okay, common day dishes, like if you go to Ghana, you're bound to get red bed, right? It's a staple for tourists because it's so accessible and it's literally... It's called red red because it's named red, it's red twice. Red once because of the red palm oil. Mm. It's beautiful, earthy, deep, kind of unctuous, rich flavour that is impossible to replicate. Mm. It has a nuttiness to it. And it's full of antioxidants and it's we use it a lot in our cooking. So as our base oil in the same way that other people use canola oil or virgin mm-hmm. oil, whatever. So it features in red as one key component which is the other red in that is the tomatoes so there's a lot mm. of it's a tomato based dish so it's basically let me just sorry i can really ramble i red love bed it is, is essentially like a bean stew or bean cassoulet using black eye beans and it's actually the parent of hopping johns so if you go back sure. down the food history chain hopping johns comes from red red so there's one example and i my Preference is to cook that as a vegan dish, but more often than not, it's fish stock or a fish, a smoked fish in it. Spinach and the goosey, I mentioned, another plant-based dish, but may have fish and or mixed meat with it. And that's the other part of it, you know, it's such a, it's so easy to vary the diet from if it is meat-based to being non-meat-based. But meat shows up in our celebrations, right? So you might have, you might have chicken or goat on Sunday, so you might have jollof right with goat or mixed meat or you might have jollof with chicken but that isn't an everyday staple that everybody thinks it is it's It's traditionally and historically it's party rice that you have to celebrate things on a Sunday Sunday is the celebration day right Sunday is church Sunday all of that and jollof is the rice dish. I just wanted to explain that. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, because I that was something I did. I was fortunate enough to have in Senegal, which is so delicious. But and I know you have a version in your cookbook, which is amazing. Uh, well, the Senegalese invented jollof. That's the other thing that people don't know. But the Belichian people from Senegal are the owners of jollof. They mm. invented it. They created it. And we've all borrowed it since. So, yes, jollof is rice, like a spiced rice dish. I guess you could call it a one-pot rice. It's not too this similar to jambalaya or something like that. So you could have a veg version, you could have a fish or a mixed meat version. But an everyday staple, something called wache, which is a rice dish, but it's also this amazing like street food you can get in like little plastic. It's not the best delivery method in the world. <laughs> it's not necessarily the most sanitary or healthy or sustainable. But you can basically get this whole meal, which includes wache rice, which is basically so wache is a leaf, it's a purple leaf, like an amaranth leaf, and we use it to colour and flavour the rice so that rice gets this kind of purpley pink mm. texture. 
and we cook it with more often than not black eyed peas again. But that is like the parent of rice and peas in like the Caribbean and Jamaica and all those places, right? But we build it out with an incredible array of other things. So you have sliced avocado, you have some salad like tomato, cucumber, you'll have boiled egg on the plate, you'll have shito, which is this Yum. delicious, spicy, hot pepper condiment made into my crayfish. Probably have some goat stew or some goat meat in the white chili sauce. And then, strangely enough, these days you also get spaghetti on that plate. Right? Hmm. That's the influence of the Chinese in Africa. But you get all of that in a bag on your way to work in the morning and that's like ah. breakfast. It's one of my favourite things in the world to eat, especially in Accra. It's amazing to me to have such a big meal in a bag for breakfast. And then what else do people know? You know, okra stew, okra soup, which is obviously the parent of gumbo. Palm soup, light soup. There's a lot of soups and stews for sure, but there's also lots of, you know, bean dishes and pulses, bambara beans, kidney beans. We use lots of pulses, lots of leaves, and lots of different herbs because, as well, you know, and spices. You know, heat spice wasn't indigenous to West Africa. I'm sure a lot of people probably know that by now, but the Portuguese brought that. And then obviously, Ghana was on the spice route from India. So, you know, we got dropped off with coriander and garlic and all these other things. Basically, different colonial people brought <laughs> yeah, herbs, herbs, herbs and spices. But yeah, it's really, it's really rich, varied diets. And as I said, the landscape's enormous. And it, so what you eat varies as to where you are in Ghana. So my family are from in and around Accra on the Cape Coast. So access to lots of fresh, amazing seafood there as well, from mackerel mm. and barracuda to shrimp and octopus and all the things. But when you go inland more, of course, you have Lake Volta. So you're looking at like tilapia and mm. perch and owlfish and things like that, which are more often dried. So you start, the further north you go, you're getting into more kind of foods that have to be fermented and dried mm. and you know treated in a different way because of the climate and, and the further north you go the more that happens so you get less and less fresh more and more and that's why it's very much more arid in the north where the housing people are and that's where you're more most likely to find ingredients like dour which is fermented locust bean so yeah it's, it's a huge variance but yeah, it's all is. very healthy and that's the bit that people don't get, I think, is just how healthy and balanced mm. <laughs> those plates of foods are in terms of vitamins and minerals and antioxidants that are on the plate. Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind, Body, Spirit Food newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week, along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, you'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. So you as a child were interested in the foods from Ghana as a really a connection to your roots and a connection to your father. When's the first time you visited the country? 
I was actually in Ghana as a child. So, like, I learned to walk and talk in Ghana. Mm. And I was weaned mm-hmm. then. <laughs> and I didn't go back to Ghana until I was an adult in my 30s. There's lots of reasons for that, which we don't have time to go into. But the universe, and I talk now about this being part of a spiritual awakening because I was doing the MA at Goldsmiths and creating life writing at the time. And I had started Garden Kitchen as this kind of side hustle, mm. really by accident, because it was just a lot of fun to do. And it was funding me through my master's program. And I was writing a book, a memoir about my dad and my relationship with my dad on that course. And I'm still writing it now. I've gone back to it, actually. And, you know, basically, Donna Kitchen was taking off while this course was Was happening. this just, at that time, was that just a pop-up kitchen? Yeah, I was just running supper clubs out of my Got home it. in East London. I mean, I say just, but I was running a lot of supper clubs out of my home in East London. It was pretty much a full-time restaurant in my house. <laughs> anyway, to cut a long story short, you know, I tried to move to Berlin and, uh, and then ended up taking a kitchen residency there and there's a press site descending. The universe just kept smacking me around the head mm. and there was something to say here. And so I figured out that, you know, not enough people were cognizant of A, the cuisine existing yeah. and B, it was an opportunity to give it the value that other cuisines, world cuisines had at the time, you know, like Southeast Asian food or... South American food were all having their moment. And it was a way for me to, you know, shift the narrative around Africa mm. that was contrary to the one that I grew up with, because I grew up with media having this very like negative stereotype constantly dripping out of Africa about famine and poverty and war and corruption and the other. Yeah. So I just wanted to create a space where people could engage with the food in it friendly environment, comforting environment, and it could be like this Trojan horse in a way to talk about bigger topics. And I guess that's what it went on to do, I suppose. But I feel like I didn't answer your original question. Well, you did. I actually, I'm glad you answered that question in that way, because I love how for you, this path has become a spiritual path. And I might be putting words into your mouth, but you did, you said the word spiritual awakening. And I feel that way about my own work in a lot of ways is it's not just, you know, as we kind of circled back to the beginning of this conversation, it's not just like for a long time, I just like peddled recipes on the web. (laughs) And after a while, I felt like my soul was being sucked dry. And it's interesting how the universe did kind of beat me up until I like kind of had to find a different path. And similarly for you, and I guess circling back to your experiences in Ghana, you certainly know so much about the cuisine. I assume you've traveled extensively now throughout the country. Is that true? Oh, that's, that was the point. Why did it take me so long to go to Ghana? So I went back because on this course, my tutor said to me, he basically said, you know, this is obviously happening. So like, let it happen and come back to this book later, which was mm. absolutely the right advice. But what had happened was I'd run out of recipes, really, because my dad isn't like Gordon Ramsay, God bless Gordon. <laughs> you know, he had his own very minimal set of dishes that he would mm-hmm. and I had limited knowledge beyond that initially, right? So I was just regurgitating the same eight to 12 dishes. And then I figured that going back to Ghana 
I needed to go to finish what I was writing because mm. there was so much about my dad's schizophrenic. And as part, like since his diagnosis, he's been even less easy to extract any kind of information from, let's put it that way. Yeah. And so going back to Ghana was like this necessary piece in finding out more about who he was before he came to England and how other people knew him. And me connecting with my own family there, right, after this big 30-year gap. And then mm-hmm. also to go and, like, grab those recipes while I was there and see the place and just be connected. And obviously I've been back many times since then. And it's a great, very friendly country that I recommend everybody visit at least mm. once. Not least for the amazing culture and food, but breathtaking landscapes as well. So that mm-hmm. is what mm-hmm. took me back to Ghana. And, you know, a lot of investigation. Like, I used to hang out on markets with women. And while I was traveling around Ghana, I was on my own. So I would just go into kitchens and ask. When I said kitchens, I would draw back, like, whatever shady blind there was in this hole-in-the-wall place (laughs) and invade their tiny little nook of kitchen Mm. space, which is always haphazard, and ask them to teach me, Mm. you know, what they just made me. And more often than not, they were really proud to do so. So that's where a lot of my recipes came from for the cookbook. In fact, all of the recipes for the cookbook came from that trip. Wow. So it served many purposes, also part of the spiritual awakening. But just, can I just tap back into that to finish that thought for a second? Yeah. The reason I've come to understand the beginning of Ghana Kitchen as a spiritual awakening is because for so long, for my entire life, because of this disjointedness between my identity, like feeling very Irish, mm-hmm. not feeling English, and having this big gaping hole about what my Africanism or African side was. I, and I think a lot of mixed race people, especially of my generation, had this like kind of a lack of sense of self. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's an unfinished story about ourselves. And I mean, there's many other layers to this, but essentially the universe gave me Ghana Kitchen and it was like, right, here's your opportunity to tell the world who you are. Mm on your own terms, you know what I mean? And so that's, Mm -hmm. from a personal perspective, that's what I stood on. It's like, okay, this is Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. This Mm -hmm. is going to be my interpretation and respect Mm -hmm. the treatment of the ingredients. And I'm going to tell this story through my own lens. I'm not going to let anybody bully me out of that, you know what I mean? Mm. Yes. So it was this amazing, like, escalation in personal confidence and autonomy of my own identity Mm. and it gave me this platform as I said to yes speak people and have great times and fun and laughter but use it all as a vehicle for a bigger idea and that bigger idea keeps getting bigger and bigger as I awaken more and more spiritually yeah well that's it that's yeah I think you just like completely captured this idea that I have been sitting with for the last couple of years, but the more authentic I get within my own self, the more impact. It has to start almost from like that selfish standpoint of I need to find my authenticity and my voice and not care, not give a crap about what anybody else is saying. And only in doing that fearlessly can I actually make an impact. That is it. There's 
fear there. I mean, I, at least for me, I've had to walk through many stages of fear, but the deeper you get and the more connected you get, there's just no other way. Like for me, there's just no other way. I absolutely agree. And it's, you know, that's been like the secondary and tertiary and the other, the sub subliminal messaging. <laughs> yeah. That I try to put out into the world, right? Is is lead with authenticity, tell your own yeah. story, be in control of your own narrative. Mm. And of course that is scary, and of course people are scared to do that initially. But once you get a taste of what it feels like to be connected to your intuition yeah. and your truth and for it to deliver, you know, it starts this amazing momentum, you know, yeah. of this ever more certainty of self. And it's a process. It doesn't really finish, I don't think. No. Same with any kind of healing of ourselves, yeah. right? Yeah. But, yeah, and that's actually where my career's trajectory is actually kind of going now is to be more of a coach, guide, let's say, to help people heal into that authenticity. Yeah. And you know, open up their own personal power, you know, yeah. open up that that portal within them. That's there that everybody has. Yeah. But everybody just gets lost in the matrix trying to keep up with whatever BS is happening. It's interesting because it is that connection. And I mean, I could talk all day to you about this, but that connection, once we can really connect to ourselves, then it's easier, in fact, to create those connections with I find not even just other people, but with the world at large, I can connect deeper to the food I eat, to the plants that I'm growing. You know, it, it's like this web of you want to seek the authenticity in everything that touches your life as opposed to numbing it out or just like for a lot of my life, I just did, 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 like went, 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 just because I thought that's what I had to do. Like, I didn't know there was another way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what we all do until we yeah. realize other something different and the only way you can realize something well there's a couple of ways like you have an absolute rock bottom yeah that's <laughs> one I've way had. i've had a, i've had a few of those and then that's the universe forcing you yeah to go internally and listen to that voice inside yourself or you can choose you can elect mm. <laughs> to do it without hitting the rock bottom and then we talk about meditation and things like that right yeah but yeah it's like it's beautiful, but, you know, I've pissed a lot of chefs off, honestly, over the years because people get so attached or they are so attached to the label and the identity of mm, it that they yeah. lose themselves quite often and they become like a machinate. What I've seen in my career, people become servants to an idea of something called hospitality mm. that that isn't necessarily or never has actually served them, right? Mm. Because with all the good intention around, you know, people think hospitality and they think Ireland, they think Ghana, because both of those places are yeah. great, huge hospita hospitality people, right? Come in, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and hospitality actually as an industry is very extractive and... Mm. It's really, you know, in some ways dishonest. It's dishonest with, A, how it rears and jolts people into the career in the first place. And we can get into the brigade system and the whole mm -hmm. politics of that, right, and where that comes from in the patriarchy. But also it then sets itself up, in this country in particular, as 
this it's not even a secret, it's an open secret, right, that we can get people to work for us and we don't have to pay them. Mm. And, yes. you know, the, di- the dirty history from that comes from slavery. Like, yes. You know what I mean? It's like, yes. and if you are over-identified with the kudos or the what somebody else tells you the label means, then you're never going to, never going to do it for yourself like so many people yeah. operate in the paradigm as it is and not challenging the status quo they're brainwashed by the language and the yeah. labels right but if people were maybe less you know associated with the labels that are happening they would be freer to make independent decisions and thoughts but that's my feeling you know it's like oh this is how these people have done this for a hundred years but i don't have to I don't have to. My soul. Yes. You know what I mean? I do. It's interesting. I just interviewed Rebecca May Johnson, who's a British writer who wrote a book called Small Fires. Fabulous book. I know Rebecca. Yeah. In the book she discusses, and we discuss in the podcast, how when we think of this domestic sphere as giving love, how kind of it denies people consent to cooking or serving or being in this in the service industry, you know, particularly for women in the past, or if you're cooking for your family because it's love, then you're not given really a choice. You're not really allowed to see that, no, it's actually a lot of work. And as that trickles down, the manifestation of that in a large way is just that any kind of domestic work, any kind of service industry work is paid a pittance because it's seen as lower than, it's seen as something that you know, it's coming out of this foundation of like, should, this is what you should do. But there's so much there. There's so much about the hospitality industry that needs to be revamped. And I'm so grateful you brought up that word because my entire memory of Senegal is hospitality is the word that comes to my head. And it has nothing to do with the industry as we think of that word here in the US, but it's because, you know, we sat and ate around a communal bowl and you eat together and the women cooking were women cooking, but they always made more. There was always people that would drop in and cook. And I felt so safe walking down the streets of Senegal and it was just hospitable. And it was a value that permeated throughout the culture. That's the key word, value. And that's kind of been co-opted. This word has been co-opted, which is I'm seeing right now. Absolutely right. They're not even hiding it from us. Just people aren't thinking about yeah. what's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hospitality, in a way, you know, as much as we've talked about change in the last few years since the beginning of the pandemic, it's like how much has actually changed? You know, it's mm. like it's still the people with the most money making the decisions for the benefit of the least number of people. And you know, there's organisations like the NRA. I'm sorry to say. You were supposed to be there. Like, what were they supposed to be there for? That's the question. Right. right? And that's when, the National <laughs> Restaurant Association, just not the yeah. National Rifle Association. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yep. When, you know, they advocate yeah. against minimum wage for yeah. hospitality. It's like, well, who are you? So you're serving the restaurant owners then. Yeah. You know? You're not serving everybody in the restaurant, just the owners. So this is what we're all waking up from, I think, slowly yeah. but surely. Yeah, it's problematic. It's like there's so much in the culture of hospitality that is unconscious. It's unconsciously mm. keeping people small, unconsciously keeping 
or well, I say unconscious. Do you know what I mean? On some yeah. level, it's on some level, not. it is. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Of course, because also you have the. I'm not going to name any names. I don't want to get sued, but there's you know a good number of famous or celebrity chefs who could do things differently. Mm. and make a platform to talk about doing things differently, but would rather keep their profits, keep their mm. margins, because that's how it's always been done. What is your what is your ideal vision? And I know this is not an answer that you can give me probably within a few sentences, but do have you imagined what the hospitality industry could look like? And what would that be? Yeah, I mean, I've managed... Yes, of course I have. <laughs> Sorry. Well, there's a few things I could talk about, right? I could talk about the fact that, and I think this might be something we see in the future, just in terms of sustainability of land. Mm. I feel like, for example, something that could happen to make operating, owning and operating a restaurant more affordable and easier to access for people is to have terms certain on leases. So that nobody can have more than 10 years with the same restaurant operating in that space. Because within 10 years, if you haven't made that restaurant a success and it's gone on to open somewhere else and yada, yada, then, you know, maybe it's time to do something else anyway. Mm. But what that would do is help the inflation of rents, do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. there would just be a more calm, commercial market because people would know oh that's up in 10 years you can't keep doing it do you know what I mean yeah obviously bringing in like rent caps and things like that for certain industries like hospitality would also be useful and then you know I hate to say it but paying people properly Mm. giving them (laughs) health insurance (laughs) the obvious which I get that people think people are like oh how can I afford that this that and the other but I think we have to move into a period of time Consciousness, is, we're in the new world, we're in the new earth right now. This is it, it's happening, right? The split has happened. Mm. And if your consciousness isn't going to move with the split, then you're going to crumble and die very soon anyway in the chaos, right? So the way I look at it is if you're going to open a restaurant and you can't afford to do those things, then you shouldn't be opening the restaurant. Mm. That's it. It's like it's all very well to be like, do you know what I mean? Like open a different kind of business that yeah. do with food because we're past the point now of replicating the harm. Right? We can't keep replicating the harm. Oh, yeah. And then the other part is, you know, people actually, and this is going to be unpopular as well, but people actually paying for the cost of their food. Yeah, properly. yeah. Because... We also have to think about you can't have hospitality and you can't have restaurants without farms and farming, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So you need the go- you need better government around subsidies and you know, it's about time it really is past time, you know, it's mass farming. All these terrible practices practices in farming and agriculture that not only ruin the land, but feeding people chemicals and just in order to give them cheap food, right? You have to get past this concept of cheap 
feed. I'm going to pop in really quick and tell all of our listeners, if you have not listened to my episode with Liz Carlisle on regenerative farming, to go back and listen. She explains all of this about the system of farming and you, we can get into it, but she also offers some really good resources for how people listening can start to make a difference. And this goes to farm to table bill and things like that that are up on the table right now. So I'm just going to pop in and say that for those of you who are ears are perked and you're nodding your head in agreement, let's do something about it. Yeah. Also check out Karen Washington and Soulfire Farm and you know, indigenous farming groups as well. There's so many of them out there mm-hmm. who are doing great work. And this is the other, so, okay, we're talking about agriculture, but it does affect hospitality, but this is important as well. It's, it's that giving land back to people so they can farm it fairly with the right subsidies. And it's pushing an organic free range agenda instead of subsidizing big farming and all of the crap that's going on. It's reversing that, right? So that more people have access to fresh foods at a price they can afford. I was at the farmer's market last weekend. It cost $14 to get less than two pounds of just ordinary field tomatoes. They weren't even heirloom. They weren't even, you know, and I was like, wow, that's insane. That's insane. And that's what it's cost. That's the reality, yeah. Right. That may be the reality of what it costs to make those tomatoes. And that's okay. Like that's the real cost of me being able to ingest fresh food that isn't sprayed with toxins and chemicals and the other. But then now I'm in a privilege, right? I'm in a place of privilege to be able to afford that. Not Mm -hmm. that I can afford that on a regular basis, honestly. But you know what I mean? Yeah. So then we're looking again at like this ever widening gap between health, the rich and the poor and poor health. Mm. that's unacceptable. So, you know, people have to just be educated on what the cost of food is. People need to understand how to grow their own food so they can appreciate. Just more appreciation of what goes into, like, Mm. growing food and putting food on the table because so many people don't appreciate what's happening. They're just so used to all this stuff off the shelf, out of season, from other countries, from other states. And there's going to be a limit to that as well going Mm. forward. Anyway, all that's to say is I don't want restaurant dining to become the sole privilege of the wealthy and rich. But at some point, do you need to address like what the actual cost of putting the, the cost of food on the plate is that includes looking after the staff and includes looking after the farmers and everybody in the supply chain. And, you know, and then that's going to potentially price people out being able to eat out and maybe where there's less restaurants, but. I don't know. It's complicated. There's so many layers to it to be solved. And a lot of it does sound like it goes back to the way that food is grown. There's so much there that you said, and it just, if we don't confront that to start, then that gap just gets wider and wider. And then, as you said, like, you know, if we're privileged, we can afford this food without chemicals, but that shouldn't be a privilege. That should just be an accessible food item that anybody could experience. I think in the end, it's one, it's, because the cause is everybody's individual cause. Yeah. Because I don't think yet we're, maybe it will implode hopefully on its own, right? But until that happens, I think that we're all responsible then for our own bodies, right? Mm. And what we put in our bodies. And we're also responsible yes. for our own minds. And yes. Our own conscience. So we have to make decisions as consumers and makers and producers every day about what is the right thing to do here for 
the highest good of as many people as possible, right? That I can control within my remit of control. Sometimes that's going to look like, you know, not eating Cheetos twice a week and spending the extra money on fuels, tomatoes from a farmer's market. And sometimes it's going to be sacrificing that and getting organic tin tomatoes. And then there's also the option of, well, I can grow tomatoes on my windowsill. Why, why aren't I doing that? Well, I think I love this because it all comes back to, you know, like one of the things that my listeners hear me say all the time and my readers, it's all about my hope is that I can help people gain sovereignty around food. And this means sovereignty around food and sovereignty around their bodies. And I don't have any judgment about what people choose, What, but know you have a choice. You mm. have a choice. And if you can get out of the conditioning space, because we are all so freaking conditioned around food you are the only one in charge of what goes in your body. How liberating is that? And of course, this comes with a web of, you know, it often doesn't feel that way because of the cost of food and because of, you know, all of these different circumstances. And if you can just really believe that for yourself, I believe that we can start to shift out of all of this web of conditioning. Yeah, we've got to take our power back. And sometimes it is those really, those doesn't seem like a big deal but it is can be as simple as in your food choices that you're making you know because cleaning the toxins out of your body i can't list all the chemicals and additives and crap that goes into the food <laughs> that's processed but you know please look at the back of your package before you put them in your baskets look at the ingredients and be like what is that if you don't understand what that is don't buy it. Don't put it in your body. Like, as I said earlier, food is because we all have to eat. And I totally agree with you. And I, you know, every time I get the opportunity to say it, I will. So I'll echo what you just said. It's that, you know, every single day we have choices. We have a choice in how we show up in the world. We have a choice in, like, what decisions we make, even the tiny ones. And if billions of people make tiny new habits and mm. tiny new choices that's how you get changed it's not necessarily about everybody doing it all at once but there is this thing of building connected consciousness around a choice right and if you make that choice that small change and you tell your friend i'm you decided i'm doing this now then you impact that person then you don't know how many other people that choice you've made will impact down it's the ripple effect right it's yeah. the butterfly effect and that's more powerful, in fact, than any one person standing on a platform right. telling every, everybody, you should do this, you need to do that. Nope. Because actually, it's about, Done. you know, it's like yes. everybody has, everybody yeah. can be empowered in making a new world happen, but it takes making new choices. So you just For have yourself. to make new choices. Yeah. Yeah. Zoe, this has been such a great conversation, and I feel like you and I could sit and just talk for days, but we got to wrap things up. So I look, I'm actually going to see Zoe this weekend at a food workshop and I can't wait to talk to you more then. But in the meantime, I've got one more question for you. But before we get there, I want to tell everyone, you know, you heard Zoe speak about some of the flavors of Ghana. I really encourage you to pick up her cookbook, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, like cook this food for yourself, get to know the culture through these delicious recipes. Where else can people find you? Where can they find your work? And then I'll ask you my last question. So you can visit zoesgarnerkitchen.com where you can buy my book, a signed copy, and buy some of the amazing spices I talked about and learn more about what the health benefits are. 
You can also find me on zoeyjohnia.com, which is a bit more of this kind of stuff, talking about decolonizing the food industry, talking about conscious leadership, talking about things like that. You'll also find there my podcast, Cooking Up Consciousness. I'm about to start recording season two. You'll find some information about Serving Up, an anthology of food writing that I've just literally just finished editing. Wow. Which will hopefully come out next year. And find some information about Black Book, which is an organization I created to primarily to deal with mental health and equity and mental health in hospitality systems. Thank you for all you do. You are such an inspiration. My last question for you is a fun one, and it's also the way I end all of my episodes, and that is, it is your last meal on earth. What would it be? Easy peasy every mm. time. It hasn't changed, and I've been asked this question a lot over 13 years. <laughs> that answer to that is groundnut soup, which is, or in fancy you say, murdering the pronunciation of that sorry, Connie. But it's, you probably had it in Senegal, actually, uh, Mafé. Oh, yeah. Each have a version. So Nigeria, we all have our own version of it. But in my house growing up, it's called peanut butter stew. It's one of the first things I learned to cook for myself. It's this really gorgeous, piquant, spicy, rich, unctuous, really deep stew or soup. Its main ingredient is peanuts or peanut butter. Which, when you're a kid, is like the best thing ever. And when you're an adult, it's still the best still. thing ever. And <laughs> my favourite version is the one in the book, which I cook with mm-hmm. lamb bones. And it will forever and a day be my favourite thing because, and I've said this many times before, but every bowl is like being hung. Mm. I actually have it in a frozen form with a brand called IO Foods from Chicago. So it's probably, it might be wow. a freezer. Well, that is one recipe I have not made from the book. And now I know what I'm making this weekend. So thank you so much. (laughs) Super easy as well. (laughs) Thank you again. It's been such a joy. Thanks for having me. What a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food, And by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. I'm Nikki Sizemore. And as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.